we're here in uh, our summer conversation where we're just really mining the book of James, where we're just digging in and, and, and staying here for the summer. And, and, and James is an interesting book for those of you that uh, have not had a lot of experience in it or have not uh, dove into it. You know that it's, uh, it doesn't leave us alone. And I've heard multiple comments from both services First service is a little more whiny, but both services uh, where they're like, leave us alone. You know, James is great for other people to read, but it's tough, and I get it. And, and three weeks ago, we, we dove in, and, and we talked about what it looks like for us uh, to experience trials and how those trials inevitably lead us to maturity, but we don't want the trials, we just want the maturity. And yet, God in his infinite wisdom has designed our lives in such a way that when we experience these difficulties, they actually uh, cultivate something beautiful inside of us. And last week we talked about hearing and doing. And what it means for us to actually hear the word of the Lord and and read the scriptures and, and do what it says, this crazy concept where we hear and we do, and this morning, James kind of moves us forward into kindness and favoritism. Everybody say kindness. Now say favoritism. Yep, kindness and favoritism. He draws us into this idea that we might not be treating others as fairly as we should. He draws us into this idea that we might be showing favoritism in areas and ways that we didn't even think, and he's not leaving any of us alone. So for just a second, as a a social experiment, I want you, uh, where you sit, uh, to imagine the exact opposite of you, whatever that person looks like. So if you're a male, that would be uh, a female. If you have long hair, short hair, bald, then there would be somebody with hair, glasses, no glasses, on and on. Exact opposite of you, where they live. How, what language do they speak? What's their socioeconomic status? Are they rich? Are they poor? Uh, what kind of clothes do they wear? Speak foreign language. What do they believe? What is their religion? What is their, uh, their, their alignment with uh, politics or morality or whatever? What does the exact opposite of you look like? Now imagine engaging in conversation with that person. Imagine entering into a conversation and, and seeking to learn from them and then for, to, uh, to, to draw resources and wisdom. What does that look like to actively participate in, in a conversation with someone that's nothing like you, that you have nothing in common? And what James is doing, he's saying we encounter people consistently that are nothing like us and our natural tendencies and desires are to stay away from those people or to avoid them or to be kind but not kind enough to where you want to spend time with them. And what James is saying is there are people around us who, who need us in relationship. They need us to, to, to show kindness, and they need us to show compassion and love. And, and yet, because of our natural biases, whether it's cultural or uh, whether it's uh, political or whatever that looks like, we created these biases in our lives where we may not intentionally be treating people differently, but we just kind of already do. And he's wanting to draw attention, shedding light on the darkest parts of our hearts where we've allowed sin of favoritism to subtly slide in. But the interesting thing about the book of James is that it draws clear lines between those who say they're Christians and those who actually live like it. And if we're going to be followers of Christ in in thought, word, deed, and action, we're going to have to look deep inside of ourselves to say, am I showing favoritism? Because the weight of the scripture is that it challenges us to move out of our own comfort. The reason we spend time with the people we spend time with and we go places that we go and we talk to people that we talk with is because there's a level of comfort. 
And if we're willing to truly follow Christ in thought, word, deed, and action, it's going to move us out of what feels comfortable to us. And there are places that you can go today and find happier sermons. It's probably too late to get there now, so you're stuck. But what I truly believe is that James is more concerned about our soul than he is about you leaving here today feeling good. God is more concerned about our eternity than he is to leave you alone and me alone to live the way that we feel like we should live. But if I only preached happy parts of the Bible, I'd be leaving out some of God's most beautiful truths. And so James jumps right in. And he reminds us that things like math and science aren't fun, but they're necessary. Getting involved in the intimate details of your life is not exciting, and yet it's essential to us to live the way that God has called us to live. And through this conversation, we're looking at the Scripture. And we're allowing the Scripture to speak and to breathe life. And I encourage you to read James when you get home. Just spend a few minutes reading James chapter 2 today and, and allow the Scriptures to speak to you without the lens of, of me in the way. You can actually read the Scriptures for yourself and draw wisdom from them. But today we're going to go through 13 verses. And we're going to talk about the what, we're going to talk about the why, and we're going to talk about the better way. So if you're like me and you like the structure and you're like, where are we at? I want to be able to time this thing. Uh, that's what I'm going to give you. The what, the why, and the better way. First is the what. What is James saying? As I'm reading these passages, I want you to look for the what so that you see it yourself. James 2, 1 says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For example, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's an interesting passage where James is saying, what? Don't show favoritism. And then he gives us a really detailed explanation. Like, James has lived this moment. You know what I mean? Like, this is not a vague, ambiguous example. This is something he's seen happen uh, possibly over and over. Where he's like, somebody comes in, they look wealthy, and you say, hey, come sit over here. We have a VIP section, which is... This section, that's our VIP section. We haven't found anybody yet, but that's our VIP section. Our celebrities are here. Uh, he's saying, hey, come sit over here. And, and if you're dressed in dirty clothes, we're like, we got you over here, and you got to sit in the back. And he's saying, I've seen this happen. And what I'm cautioning you against is that if you show partiality, if you create favorites, then you dishonor God because it's not just about partiality or favoritism. It's discrimination. And many of us would not intentionally discriminate and yet because of uh, how we've been raised or because of uh, culture or because of this or that, we've allowed ourselves to operate without actually being intentional and our operation, our normal program that we walk through, ends up having discrimination programmed in it. And James is saying, don't withhold glory, love, affection, hospitality, friendship, mercy, kindness, or service to people based on their external appearance. But how are we supposed to know if they're good people? How are we supposed to know if they're kind people? How are we supposed to know if they're safe people? If we're not able to judge people based on what we see, then how are we supposed to know how we're supposed to treat them? And the way we as Christians treat others 
is often determined upon the socioeconomic class, their age, their clothing, their weight, their gender, their skin color, or even their uh, attractiveness. Thanks for accepting me. But I wonder how much of that we need to push back against in our own lives. We've been called by God to treat everyone equally with compassion, grace, and mercy. Now I look around the room and I go, okay, easy enough. Like, by and large, we all look pretty much the same in this room. You know what I mean? Like, if we're just honest, there's some age differences or maybe a, a little bit of socioeconomic difference. Uh, you might have a little more money, but uh, you might have more hair or less. I mean, there's just, but by and large, we're pretty much the same people. I mean, if I were to put on a song, like, you would probably tolerate it. Like, we're not so different, you and I. So it's easy to go, yeah, okay. I won't show favoritism to you guys because we all look pretty much the same. By and large, I think we believe the same. If I were to bring up a topic politically or uh, biblically, you'd probably go, okay. So it's easy in a room like this. What's it look like for us to go just five miles down the road to Pastor JC's church? It's greater hope. It doesn't look anything like us. The room doesn't look like this. The music doesn't sound like this. The preaching is not quite as calm as this. It's a different culture. Could we find ourselves immersed in a culture that we don't fit in or feel like uh, is like us and still not show favoritism? Okay, let's load up. We got a van, only holds 15, but we've got two, so maybe, maybe we can get that and carpool, and we go down to uh, a, a rough part of town. There's no church service. There's no nice, really dressed people. Everyone looks like they may want to hurt you. We don't know, but we're in this environment, and, and all of a sudden it doesn't look like us, and it doesn't sound like us, and feel like us, and they're not talking like us. And, and, and can we find ourselves not looking down upon people that aren't like us? It gets a lot more challenging. And this month is a difficult and interesting month. As we culturally are celebrating Pride Month, what does it look like for us to immerse ourselves in a, in a group of people that don't believe like some of us? What does it look like for us to find ourselves in spaces and rooms and places where people aren't just different, they're the opposite? Can we come to a place where we can still adhere to wor the words that God is speaking through James? He says, don't despise the rich and don't neglect the poor. And in order for us to treat everyone equally, we have to come to a place where we love everyone. Now, originally in my notes, I wrote, love everyone equally. And then I started thinking, well, that's not possible. I can't love my wife as much as I love the postman or whoever's delivering the mail. Like, that's not unless the postman's your spouse. Uh, then you should love them the same. We can't have the same love for the same people, right? So there are obvious levels of love where the, you know, the UPS driver is not the same as your kids and the barista is not the same as your grandparents or whatever. So there's obvious levels of love. But you and I have to come to a place where we can love others equally. And there are times in very recent history where people, because of the color of their skin, were not allowed in rooms like this. There's a time in very recent history where you couldn't wear jeans to church or shorts to church, where you couldn't bring coffee in the room, where you had to have certain instruments and things had to be a certain way. There's been times where we as people, human beings like us, have created 
boundaries, and we all have them. Every one of us have these barriers that we've created, whether we're honest about them or not, whether we even recognize it or not. We all have barriers where we go, as long as you live like this, as long as you believe like this, as long as you can fit in this, this window, and some of us it may be pretty wide, as long as you fit in this, then, then you can be accepted, and, and all of us have barriers. And what I've noticed about the scriptures is that there are boundaries in Christ, but there are no barriers to Christ. There are boundaries in Christ. We have the scriptures and morality is spelled out and we believe in the biblical interpretation of what is sin, but we also believe in the biblical uh, revelation of how we can find forgiveness and a pathway out of sin. And we uphold the morality that God has placed in front of us. And that alone is difficult, but we don't have to create more barriers to Christ. There are no barriers to Christ. We can come to God with our sin and our junk and our pain and our problems, and we can bring that to the cross. We can lay it at Jesus' feet and find grace and mercy because there are boundaries in Christ, but no barriers that holiness and sanctification, those are the goals. But love and mercy and grace, they come first can we, as followers of Christ, listening to the words of James, live with intentionality, saying grace and love and mercy are going to come first? Our default, our posture is going to be to love. But I think we have to fight the pull in our hearts to be gatekeepers. You belong and you don't. I'll accept you and I won't accept you. But isn't it just human nature for us to do that? We're just sort of hardwired, as it were. But James is saying, don't show favoritism toward the rich. But who are the rich in our lives? Maybe the better question is, who are the poor? If we can't show partiality and we don't want to uh, negate the poor, who are the poor in our lives? Now maybe he's speaking of ob obvious poverty. And it's possible that he's just speaking of people who don't have money, who have dirty clothes and, 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 and can't afford uh, basic necessities. Maybe he is just talking about the poor, but I wonder if he's not talking too about the poor in spirit. What if he's talking about the people so immersed in sin that their, their souls are impoverished? Who are the poor among us? Where are they seated? Where are they allowed to sit? Are we allowing them into our lives? Are we gatekeeping? See, the Bible is giving us a clear warning. He's saying, don't do that. Don't separate or segregate yourself. There's a difference between being set apart and being separate. As followers of Christ, if you've aligned your life with God, you are set apart. You're a chosen generation. God loves you and he blesses you and he bestows his grace upon you and you are set apart. The Bible says you're set apart for such a time as this that he has a mission and a plan and a purpose for you. But it doesn't mean that we're separate. See, what I realize is that light is better in dark spaces, but a lot of us want to be light in light spaces. And right now, we're in a lit space. We're all bright lights shining in a brightly lit room but what happens when we go to dark spaces that we've been called to be in the world but not of the world and when God gives us a warning what happens is in his beautiful way he always gives us an invitation and when God warns us he's also inviting us into something else when I warn my kids about potential danger I'm not like flexing my parental muscles and like trying to prove that I can, you know, put rules on my kids. I'm actually inviting them into a, a better, safer life, right? When God invites us into something new, when he, when he puts boundaries or regulations on things, he's not flexing his muscles. He's inviting us into a better life. And he's this warning of, of don't show favoritism leads us to the why. But the why is always more complicated on everything, right? 
The what is always pretty simple. The why always ends up being a little more complex. So, for example, if you have some kids, you go, uh, clean your room. And they go, why? What do you say? Because I said so, right? Why do you say because I said so? Because that's easier than explaining, like, mold and bugs and uh, not being able to see the floor and smells. Like, I've got a 17-year-old. He's turned 17 next week. And like you want the smell that, that emanates from the room. It's like, hey, you've got to clean that up. But that's way more difficult than just saying because I said so. And so we don't want to go into the why. We just give the what. And what God does is he says, I'm giving you the what, but now I'm going to give you the why. The why is far more complex than the what. But the what says don't show favoritism. Just don't do it. The why then is this warning and the invitation. It says, listen, my dear brothers. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? The what? Don't show partiality. Don't show favoritism. Don't discriminate. The why? Because you dishonor God. You reveal that you don't actually understand the gospel when you do this. See, the last time I played basketball at the YMCA with a bunch of strangers, uh, mostly younger, all younger than me, which is more fun, but uh, you shoot for teams, and you line up on the free throw line, everybody shoots, and the first, you know, however many people are playing, three, four, make it, are on one team, and then the ones who don't do it are on the other team, and then obviously you win, and so there's this idea that we feel like God chooses us the same way. It's like, hey, you're all going to line up, we're all going to shoot free throws, and if you make it, you score, you do the right thing, then you're on the team, and if you don't, then you're not on the team, and a lot of us who can shoot free throws, metaphorically, would like to see the gospel work that way. Because then we're on the team. And yet what happens through the scriptures, and it's revealed to us through, through Christ, is that that's not how God works. And yet we want it to be that way so often. We, we imagine that the kingdom of God is, is like that, where God is picking the best and the brightest and the, the, the wisest and the wealthiest and the most talented for his team, because we want to be that. We think that we're those people, and because we're chosen, because we're the best, and because we're the wisest and the most moral, then God obviously has chosen us, that God's team isn't made up of all of those. It's made up of the people who couldn't hit the mark. It's made up of people who are struggling. That when we believe that the kingdom of heaven is full of people who are hitting the mark every time over and over, that's actually anti-gospel. That's not how God works. In fact, if, if God is after the best and the smartest and the most attractive and the wealthiest, a lot of us in this room won't make it. I mean, look around. So thank God that he chooses us. If we'll humble ourselves, present our weakness to him, and then all of a sudden through our weakness, he is made strong. And a lot of times we think that we have to come to God with all of our stuff and go, I'm awesome, you should choose me. And God's going, I don't want any of that. I just want your heart. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many are powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring nothing, what is viewed as something. So that no one can boast in his presence, but it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus 
who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. When we boast, we boast in the Lord. God deliberately chooses passing on the wise and the mighty and the noble unless they renounce their qualifications. Unless we relinquish our self-reliance, God will not use us in spite of our weakness and inadequacies. God uses us because of our weakness and inadequacies. He refuses to use our most spectacular gifts and unique qualifications until we are weaned off of our reliance upon them. He's saying, I want your heart. And our trouble isn't that we are too weak, but that many of us think that we're too strong. Human weakness provides the best backdrop for God to do his work. And if we take all of this into consideration, then we begin to understand why we don't show partiality. Because it's the weakest that God makes strong. It's the least that he makes the greatest. And we're the ones that go, well, you got to do this and do that. And God's going, no, I want the least. I want the furthest. I want the worst. That when we show partiality, we show favoritism, when we discriminate, we dishonor God because you step out from under his saving grace. That's his plan, is to find people furthest from him and bring them to him. We become many gods, judging others with our evil intentions. But you and I, you weren't saved because of our awesomeness. You weren't saved because of your uh, morality. So the demand that someone else meet your criteria of, de- uh, of awesomeness is anti-gospel, and it's outside of the scope of how God desires to operate And a merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his or her morality will have contempt for the outcast. That if we have contempt for the outcast, it's because our view of God is so strangely warped. We say things like, I worked hard to get to where I am. I made good choices in my life and I lived a a good life so you can do the same. Why don't you just do better? Why don't you just try harder? And this is the language of the moralist heart. You and I are only where we are by the sheer, undeserved, unmerited grace of God. And we need consistent reminders that we are not awesome apart from God. And the way we treat others says a lot about how we view God. The way that we interact the way that we gatekeep, the way that we love and accept or, or put off. And if we think that God is hand-selecting us and waiting for us to live a certain way before we are chosen, then we're missing the message of Jesus Christ. It's only because of the cross. And when God talks about the poor, God is serious about how you and I should treat them. I think both practically and metaphorically. James continues on by saying, you dishonor God. You dishonor that poor man. We're dishonoring God's creation when we dishonor other people. Then James starts asking questions. He says, don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you at your baptism? James is uh, accusing the church in the middle of this text. He's saying, you want to be so loved and accepted by the world that you're compromising and you're turning your back on your Christian brothers and sisters to try to cozy up to the world. You're trying to make yourself relevant. You're trying to make yourself acceptable. We're trying to make Jesus into an image of our own making that the world can accept and it's not working and it's not the way that God has called us to live. We are never going to make Jesus so acceptable that everybody thinks he's amazing. The gospel is going to cut 
the reality that God calls us to live a, a moral life is always going to separate because there are people who don't want to hear it. And we can, we can list off countless ways that this is playing out. But you're never going to make Jesus so relevant. So why are we trying to cozy up to the world? Why are we trying to favor the world when God has called us to more? The what? Don't show partiality. The why? It dishonors God. It dishonors your brother. And now he gives us a better way. Now the better way that we can live. The better way in James 2.8 says, Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit murder also said do not, or commit adultery rather, also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you're a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Can we love our neighbor and still show favoritism? Yes. Yes, because what happens a lot of times is we go, well, I love my neighbor on the left side. I don't know about that right side. I love my neighbor as long as they're in this room. I love my neighbor as long as they're white. I love my neighbor as long as they're straight. I love my neighbor as long as they're uh, willing to profess Christianity. I love my neighbor as long as. And James is saying, that's not, that's not enough. It's not enough to just love your neighbor. And then he begins to compare it to something that I think is pretty, pretty, pretty dark. He compares it to adultery and murder. He's saying, oh yeah, you don't, you don't commit adultery, great, but you did murder. You loved your neighbor, great, but you still showed favoritism. I would never put favoritism and murder in the same category, and yet James is saying, this is serious. We have to understand the severity of how God sees the way we treat one another. It's not light. And James is saying it's not enough to merely come to church on the weekends and, and feel good. It's not enough to sing songs and receive communion and regurgitate some things that you've learned from your past church uh, services. He's saying it's not enough to be good in a few areas of your life. It's not a good enough to just love your neighbor, but we actually have to go the extra mile. None of that matters if we're unable to be kind and compassionate to all humanity. None of that matters if we don't treat people with respect and dignity. We don't have to agree with them. We don't have to like the way they live. We don't have to agree with the way that it's being pushed in our faces or, or, or immorality is being thrown at us and, and, and forced upon us. We don't have to agree with it to be kind and compassionate. And in order for us to grow, we have to find ourselves around people that are different than us. We can't segregate, we can't isolate, we can't live in a little bubble of our own making. We have to find ways to engage in communication with people who live different than us. And Jesus says the church needs to love their neighbor, but they can't pick and choose their neighbor. We need to love the people around us, our community. It's not enough to just love your neighbor, but you have to go the extra mile to not discriminate against people who don't live near you. And when you hand select your neighbor, you're showing favoritism and we're sinning. And a lot of us are doing it unintentionally. In fact, some of us, many of us, may even be doing it for very good reasons. 
We may have justified our behavior and our thought life and the things that we post online because we feel like we have the moral high ground. And God's saying, it's time to humble ourselves. It's time that we treat others with respect. doesn't mean that we have to agree with everyone. But we do have to love and show compassion. And Jesus will judge us based on whether or not we were obedient. His judgment will be righteous and holy. And he will not judge us based on outward appearance. It will be based on the sincerity of our faith and our obedience. God is good. He's a good father and he's warned us and he's invited us into a better way. And that better way is that we treat everyone with dignity and respect. Don't show favoritism. When someone is great, don't turn your back. When someone is unworthy, don't walk away. No one is proud because he's rich. No one is proud because he's clever. No one is proud because he's good looking. We have pride in our lives because we are richer, we are better looking, and, and we feel like we are more clever, right? So there's this comparison. We start looking at our morality versus others, and we start feeling better, superior. And God's saying, let's do away with all of that. We're all sinners. We're all broken by sin, Every one of us need the grace and the mercy of Christ. So we should never see ourselves as better or more qualified than anyone else. The movement that we see ourselves apart from God is that we've got to get away from dishonoring him in the way we treat others. We've got to move further into respect and love. And we have to stop segregating and separating ourselves because we're all God's children. In Galatians 3, it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But what's beautiful for you and I is that our identity doesn't come from money. Our identity doesn't come from our good looks, our talents, our abilities, our skin color. Our identity is found in Christ. Who he is in our lives and what he's doing and what he's working on. And when we begin to view the people around us the way that God views us, it changes the way we relate and act and interact with others. And God's saying, I want to get involved in the most intimate details of your life. I want to get involved in your thought process, your actions, your words, the things you type and post and share. I want to get involved in your life. And I want to make sure that everything that we're saying and doing is bringing honor and glory to God. And I know it's tough. I know it's getting harder and harder out there to show love and compassion to people. Because when we imagine that someone who's opposite of us, we start imagining some really difficult people to love. But it's easy to love people that are easy. God is inviting us into loving those who could never love us back. That we no longer show favoritism because God doesn't show favoritism. You and I don't show favoritism anymore because God doesn't show favoritism. And I'm so thankful that he doesn't because there's moments in my life where I don't deserve God's mercy. I don't deserve uh, the title of follower of Christ. And yet God doesn't show favoritism. He calls us, compels us, gives space for us, continues to offer grace and mercy and forgiveness over and over and over and over if we'll accept it. But we also have to give it. Can we be people who go, maybe I haven't quite loved the way I have to, should have loved. Maybe I haven't treated others with the respect that I feel like I should have treated them with. We all want the grace and mercy, but we don't all want to extend it to others. And James is saying, don't show favoritism. Let's show grace and mercy. Let's show some love to people. If you would bow your head and close your eyes this morning. Lord, we confess that the gospel is good news for the oppressed and the oppressor. 
Both are raised up, both are liberated, but in different ways. The oppressed are raised up from the harsh burden of inferiority. The oppressor from the destructive illusion of superiority. But Lord, we confess that the gospel is your power to form a new people. Not identified by dominance and superiority, but by unity in the spirit. So Father, bring a spirit of unity upon us. Lord, we commit our lives to you. Believing that you are working in the world in spite of destructive powers and principalities. God, we admit that it's tough out there. We ask that you would bring healing to those who are hurt, peace to those who are anxious, and love to those who are fearful. So we wait for you. So God, show us the areas of our life where we need to get to work. Show us where we need to start. Cleaning up, cultivating, working, doing the hard work in our hearts so that we can show genuine compassion and love to others just as you've shown to us. So that you may get the victory and the glory. So that we may point people to you, the God who gets involved in people's lives and eradicates sin and and calls us to more. Father, may we be people who connect others to you. So make haste, God. Come to our aid. Help us. Strengthen us. Empower us. Give us wisdom as we navigate uh, very, very tricky political and and moral obstacles. Give us wisdom to view others through the lens of the scriptures where we walk carefully leaning heavy in grace. So Father, we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.